Hey everybody, it's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. It's really wonderful to have you here. This time around, a chat with my friend Bill Boyle, who is one of the smartest and most informed people you will ever encounter. Specifically, I wanted to talk to him about his personal and family connection to Vietnam and his experiences traveling in Southeast Asia. From there, we go all over the world, literally. Let's get into it. everybody. It's Maddie C. Welcome back to the What Am I Making podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for pressing play. Thanks for being a part of this community. Things are good, man. Um, it's been really, really busy the last week or two. Um, you can see I've been cracking out, cracking out, cranking out a bunch of stuff on the old, the old sub stack there. And um, it's just been, it's been a really good run and I'm feeling really good about it. You guys have been really kind. Um, things are going great with the summer tour. Uh, still got some dates to fill, so make sure that you head on, on over to phonoforrecords.com slash house hyphen shows to take a look at those. I've got four open dates still left. Uh, July 10 in Asheville, July 11 around Atlanta or Athens, July 13 around Nashville or Memphis, and July 15 somewhere in Indiana, Ohio uh, corridor would be, would be great. Um, Tickets are on sale for the rest of those dates. You can go to phonoforrecords.com slash house hyphen shows or phonoforrecords.com slash shop to find tickets and merch bundles just for my summer tour. Again, this is a super exciting, super terrifying thing. I would love to have your support and to see you out there. If you're going to be in any of these 16 cities that I'm going to be hitting, and again, you can get all those dates over at the website, please make sure to come out. I'd love to see you. It would mean the world to me. I'm taking a pretty big swing here, and I really hope that I'm not just uh, striking out. So, uh, please, come on over and, uh, you know, say hey. Um, as I mentioned, things have been really busy over at the Substack. I've also got a new little thing you can do, which I'm going to be premiering some of the results of, I hope, next week. Um, there's a way for you to leave me a voicemail. So you can actually call and ask a question talk about a thing you love, rant about something, whatever you want to do. You can go to SpeakPipe, that's S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E, speakpipe.com slash what am I making, and it'll just use your default uh, microphone. It's like jumping on a Zoom, it'll just use whatever microphone you have normally hooked up to your computer. You hit a little button, you record it, you hit the button to stop, it sends it to me, that's it. It's really simple. Uh, you can even send me a note and say, hey, Maddie, I want to ask you this question, but I don't want you to use my voice on the pod. That's totally cool. But this is a really neat way for us to communicate, and it's something I'm trying, and I would really like it if you've got things you'd like to share with the show, questions you have, things you'd like to hear me talk about, stuff you'd like me to cover, guests you'd like me to interview, those kinds of things, send them my way. And then if I've got something that's particularly good that I can put on the show, I will uh, I will add it to the pod as we move along. So again, it's speak pipe dot com slash what am I making leave me a message let me know uh, what you got going on what you want to talk about now let's get to the real reason you're here which is the interview 
Um, I first got to know Bill Boyle from his insights and analysis over at uh, my friend Pete Dominic's show, Stand Up with Pete Dominic. Now, Bill's day job is owning a series of parking garages in and around the D.C. metro area. But I tend to think his real genius is in breaking down complex information and then disseminating that out into discernible, understandable chunks. I have truly learned as much about the war in Ukraine from Bill as I have about any other single outlet. He's an amazing resource of knowledge and context and history and information. And he just understands how to process it. And it, it's really remarkable. But Bill's not a journalist and he would never promote himself as such. Still, he has that insatiable curiosity that I feel like I have. And, and Bill is so incredibly well-read, well-sourced, and well-traveled, it's hard not to learn something from him every time you talk. He's also had the good fortune to see much of the world and to understand the context behind it in those travels. First, when I reached out to Bill, I really wanted to talk specifically about Vietnam. My mom and I recently took a trip to Morocco, as I've shared with many of you, and are looking to travel again at the end of 2023 or the beginning of 2024. And Southeast Asia is a place that we have our, our radar fixed. And so I wanted to get the straight dope. Bill's wife, V, had begun her life in Vietnam with her family. And then in the late 1970s, the family joined hundreds of thousands of others of other refugees known as boat people. And they made their way to America, eventually settling in the metro D.C. area. The family has since gone back to travel extensively throughout Southeast Asia after leaving in the late 70s. And I really wanted to talk to Bill for the pod about this experience, his family connection, and so that I could get my own intel on daily life in Vietnam and what to look for in getting around. And being the dudes that Bill and I are, we pulled at this thread initially that was travel discussion in Southeast Asia. And then it led down a path of fascinating discussion that I think maybe best highlights Bill's great penchant for storytelling and just how incredibly bright and, and comprehensive his knowledge is. We hit upon history, culture, philosophy, pho, day drinking, and more. It's a really great chat. I think you're going to love it. Here we go. Can you hear me? Hey, Bill. What's going on, buddy? Not much. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. What's up? Not much, man. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Sure. Not a problem. Yeah. A problem I, uh, I, I, I don't know. It's kind of a weird idea, but like, I had a really nice long conversation with Kevin. A couple people were like, wow, that travel stuff was really good. You should do some more of that. And I was like, okay. Um, yeah. What, do, what would, you know, what would you want to do? And they were like, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And I'm like, is it that simple? And they were like, yeah, I really would just be interested in you finding out what it takes to go someplace. Okay. Ah. So like my mom and I, are, I've told you this before, like my, my mom and I have been researching Southeast Asia. We're going to take another tour sometime, probably end of this year, beginning of next. Yep. And, um, and I'm going to talk to Kevin tomorrow. And I think we're going to try to sort of semi-regularly pick a spot or a country or an idea and just kind of dive in and go, what does it take to go there? How hard sure. is it? You know, that kind of stuff. So I thought it might be really interesting since you have such a personal connection to that region and have traveled. Right. I, I, I would love to know. Um, so first of all, what is your connection? So my wife was born in Saigon. Um, her All of her family, except for her youngest brother, 
were born there. He was born after they came to the U.S. Um, and they obviously were refugees from the Vietnam War. If people remember the boat people. That's that's their family history. Um, what was and, that? Um, so I, I had the good fortune of meeting some people on my trip to Morocco who had their own story of, of being boat people. And they had two different stories and actually didn't even meet each other until they got to the States and then share yes, those stories common. with each with. So they knew each other in Vietnam then didn't know each other for a while then met again. And wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, their experiences on the boat were completely different from each other. And so I'm really curious what, and I think in having talked to you before, your mother-in-law does not like to discuss this. No, they are very reticent about it. I mean, okay. it, I think that they had been, they had been very poor people in Vietnam by you know birth and, where they started out, they had done quite well and become, I think, pretty wealthy, actually. Um, but I thought that, the, you know, I think that they just, they had a lot there. You know, a lot of people that were in Vietnam, I don't think had a lot in Vietnam. They didn't feel like they were leaving a lot behind when they left. Well, they, no, I wouldn't say that because you're, you know. Well, you're I leaving still, behind your home, but I mean, in terms of like physical possessions and, and right, uh, right. conventional and wealth. Had, and you had succeeded from beyond your wildest dreams. And then, and they weren't, you know, they were not like regime people. They were, they sold fertilizer, stuff like that. I mean, they, they yeah. had created like a whole family mini dynasty and then it just got crushed. And, you know, they had some family on the other side. And I think that their expectation was that things, you know, there was, there was negotiable basically okay. this transition. And of course that's not what happened. Um, and so they had to flee. And I suspect that the, traumas of the destruction of what they had had and their flight were the sorts of things that they just don't want to discuss. And, you know, I'm not sure that there's a huge story there. Right. Part of it also is that, you know, other than, you know, I, I'm not sure for instance, that they suffered any more than anyone else. Um, but what I think part of it is, is that when you get to the U S some people have an eye over their shoulder for the rest of their life or where they came from. Other people say, no, we're here now. This is our life. This is what we're doing. And we're moving forward here. And, you know, my mother-in-law is a very formidable woman. She's very smart. She's, um, you know, she got to America with two little kids and she spoke very, she and her husband spoke almost no English at all. And they were, they were um, sponsored by a family in Wheaton, Maryland. And that's how they got out of a refugee camp and landed in the Washington suburbs. But, wow. you know, they imagine that. I mean, imagine having two little kids and, you know, you put them into kindergarten, they don't speak a word of English. And by the end of the year, they speak English fluently and you're still sort of catching up. Yeah. And, you know, and so, trying to trying to learn a completely new culture and yeah. start from scratch financially. Like it's just it, it seems complete, it, honestly looking at it as an adult, like it seems impossible. I mean, I know I, you well, don't really have a choice, but like it yeah. just I look at that and just go, Jesus Christ, how are you not paralyzed? Well, and I think the difference is that people who are paralyzed don't leave. Mm -hmm. they don't they don't go in the first place right that's because probably back, true back home the dramatic changes were immense and to be clear you know vietnam was not cambodia the vietnamese government was not executing people in the streets it was not putting people you know there were re-education camps of which my wife and her brother and my in-laws were in you know but they were not um you know this was not stalinist by any stretch so if you were not the kind of person who had that wherewithal and gumption to go then you know you could kind of it was bad but it wasn't as bad as right over the border it wasn't staying wasn't necessarily lethal no definitely not 
Yeah, it wasn't. Um, it was just. It just sucked. It just was poverty and yeah. ruination for ten years. Um, um, what what year did your wife's family get out? Seventy seven, I want to say. Okay. Seventy eight. Okay. So after the war had ended. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What, um, what the what the communists did was, you know, they had these businesses. The family did, and what they slowly did was start getting rid of the ability to move cash around. Right. So they didn't hang all the business people, but they started to restrict cash flow and to restrict your ability to move money around because they, the government was trying to consolidate power and they knew that there had been an enormous, you know, business class in South Vietnam that was quite adept at maneuvering and manipulating. And so their way of dealing with that was to get rid of their ability to have money to spend. And that of course brought all these businesses to ruination. Yeah. Now, Tied to that were things like, oh, you're sort of a class enemy because you're borrowing money or you're lending money or you're you're moving money around without the local official signing off on it, et cetera. So, you know, there was definitely the same process that happened in all of those revolutions where there's an identification who's with you and who's not. Yeah. And then a progressive attempt to squeeze all those people. And, you know, at first and for 10 years after the war, the Vietnamese government wanted them to leave. They were happy to see them leave. Because it meant fewer people that there were dangerous they to worry about. Yeah. Within a decade or so, they realized, oh shit, we just destroyed our economy. And we have to we have to reverse that, which they did within a decade. They were already trying to get people to come home. And people in my wife's family were back in Vietnam within 12, 15 years. Oh wow. Yeah. Um not to live, not to live, I should point out. No, but it. but to but to visit it, but like that's when you think about it in the standpoint of like a uh, like a mass exodus like that, that's a really short period of time. Extremely short. Yes. You know, and I mean, we're not even we're not even really talking about a full generation. No, not at all. Not you at know? all. I mean, I mean my, that's my really wife, incredible. My wife and brother-in-law were in, you know, traveling in Southeast Asia by the 90s, mid 90s. And they were how old when they left, roughly? Uh, four or five. OK. Okay. They were little kids, but you know, they, so they were little kids, two. but then they were visiting in their twenties. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. that, that then, is amazing to and, me. Well, and then, you know, part of it too, is that the people get to the U S they tend to congregate in the same places and DC Wheaton, Maryland is like the landing strip for immigration in this area. And still is actually. And, you know, you stay, you have this community that all these people arrive, you're not arriving alone. Right. You're, you're arriving, you're arriving in a new version of what you already know. Yes, exactly. And well, there's you're in the larger American society, but then there's this intense group of people who are who came at the same time. Well, it's a little bit like the same language. It's a little bit like the the Middle Eastern population in the Detroit suburbs. That's right. You know, right. um the largest population of of Arabic people outside of Saudi Arabia is in southeastern Michigan. It's Chaldeans, right? It's it's yeah. There, oh, there's a ton of Chaldeans, yeah. Um, but there's a ton of people from um, Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. But there's also just yep. a bunch of people from the Middle East who are just Muslims who wanted to sort of pursue the American dream. And yeah, and because of that, you create these little enclaves like the DC Vietnamese community that you're talking about. And there you have these all over, even in smaller cities. Yeah. Oh, um, Naples and Akron, Ohio is a big thing. Really, right? that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, I have a friend that lives out there and he, you know, he describes Akron as one of those overlooked cities because no one thinks of it, but it actually has, it's been revitalized by immigration. Um, 
and and you know that's the way these things are supposed to work in America, right? I mean, and 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 the, by the way, this process we're talking about really speeds up because if you came in the 1850s like my ancestors did, you really got cut off. The people in Ireland they had this idea of America and they saw some American civilization, but you know, and culture, but their ancestors were in America and they were gone. And my family kept some tenuous connection for a long time. And then by like the 60s and 70s, they were able to really reestablish that connection strongly because of television, telephones, right. roads, railroads, airplanes. I was going to say access and, and, access to affordable travel. Right. And, and what you see in the, in the context of my own family is that the people in Ireland have a much more advanced and modern idea of Ireland than the Irish Americans do. The Irish Americans hold on to. Because the they still ways. think of it as, quote, the old country. It's the old country. And granddad said it was like this. And so there's, you know, my family, they they are mockingly referred to as Notre Dame Irish because they are <laughs> super conservative Midwestern Irish who have this really fucking weird idea of what Ireland is. It's very much the it's very much the um, stereotype of Bagash and Bigora, Shamrocks and Leprechauns kind of bullshit, which nobody in it's, Ireland it's Derby goes to in any way. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the quiet people who watch The Quiet Man on Easter and think that's an Irish movie. Yeah. Whereas um, my father, my father would like spit at the television if that one was on. <laughs> right? Because it was such a bullshit, you know. I would like, only I would only do that because John Wayne is overrated as hell. Um oh yeah, but it's like this twee bullshit about Irish culture. Yeah. That, you know, Wait, when so you go to Ireland, a, it's a fairy not, tale. It's a fairy tale. And you know, as you know, I was just in Belfast and you know, that's really like every Irish American should be forced to spend a weekend in Belfast because it will really reset their clock. Uh, what do you mean? I mean, I think I know what you mean by that, but can you ex- elaborate? Sure. I mean, Irish culture is very dry, bone, bone, bone dry sense of humor, very skeptical, um, still in many ways quite Catholic, but Catholic, Vatican II Catholic. And and you find you can find the real old country folks if you go way out west, way up north. But really, you know, it's a European place that is, uh, it's just moved on. It's got all these cultural references that Irish Americans have no idea of. You know, you said Darby O'Gill. That's a great example where the Darby O'Gill in Ireland, people would be like, "What the fuck is that?" Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. They wouldn't even. Yeah, that's like a, the quiet man. They'd go, "Oh shit, Americans." Yeah, but it's actually a thing that they denigrate and they think is ridiculous. Well, I mean, um, I mean, isn't it a little bit like if somebody from Europe uh, were to look at America and think it was all Mark Twain? Oh, cowboys. You know, you know oh, okay, uh, Hitler, okay. Hitler, the, Hitler and the Nazis, they all read. Um, there was a German guy whose name escapes me in that era and before that era who wrote like 50 books about. He was the, the Weimar you know, Zane Grey. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. You know, he wrote, I forget the name of the protagonist, but it was like, you know. Bucky Detweiler or something. And, oh, you yeah. Know, it's this, like, I feel like I have heard about these books. Oh, yeah. You probably, I mean, it's it's a thing that Hitler and all these guys all read it, and it was their their view of America was completely infused with this idea of cowboys and Indians. And by the way, all the racial connotation that goes into that yeah. really fixed in their heads what America was, what America was obviously, I, you know, there's an argument that there never really were cowboys. Right? right. Like that's right. A, that's a real academic argument that that's kind of a made up conception even here. And, and so, you know, where this gets back to Vietnam is that you people leave, but there's still a lot of interconnection. Like the break is not so hard. 
And do you think, right? do you think that people who, who, who do leave that they kind of silo that uh, experience? Like uh, you made the comment about looking over your shoulder, like in terms of your, your Irish ancestors, there's right. a, there's a, I know you're a Pogues fan. There's a beautiful uh, song that Shane McGowan wrote called thousands are sailing about the oh, yeah. Ir- Irish immigrant experience. And there's a line and I'm probably not going to get it right, but uh, do the old songs help to cheer you or do they still make you cry? Um, and then it's, right. did you, did you something, 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 or did your teardrops quickly dry? And the idea is, are you still hanging on to the lamentation of leaving the right. old country, but never giving up the sort of phantom limb of it? Or have you just, yeah. or, have, or did you just step off the boat and move on? Like, yeah, no, you- that's, I mean, I always tell my son that, that every single Irish song, every single, you know, pose or traditional Irish song is about death or leaving. Mm-hmm. That's it. They're all even, about even that. the what drinking ones especially the drinking ones actually uh, uh what's the one um well obviously the body of an american is a great example of oh. that kind of inverts it where that's an irishman looking at this irish american guy who has been brought back to ireland to be buried yeah and that kind of that kind of inverts that but it's the irish perspective on those guys and is it the i'm trying to think if it's not the sick bed of Cullen, but it's the other one oh sally macklin uh, Mac- oh, yeah sally macklin yeah which is a which is an Irish guy who went to America and became rich, and then comes home and it's it's we what is it we walked him to the station in the rain, and yeah. we kissed him as we put him on the train. That's sending somebody off to heaven. That's right. Yeah. Oh, it's a wave. Right. It's the, that whole song is a wave. A, yeah, exactly. And so yeah. it's it's you know it goes that goes both ways in that do the Irish let go of the people who leave, and by by the way, no, they never do. And and do the Americans who or the Irish Americans who have left do they let it go? I, I would say that most Irish that I know in America have quite left it behind. Um, I, I think in modern era, definitely. Mm-hmm. But because that's also in part because when Irish come to America now, they're not ghettoized. No. Right? I mean, people talk about Asians being the model minority. In America, culturally, the model minority is the Irish. You come to America with an Irish accent, people immediately think you're hilarious, cool, and great. Mm-hmm. And, and they think you are one no, of they do also They do also make an assumption sometimes correctly that you're an alcoholic uh yeah a bit a bit that's true yeah that's true Although, like, have you, you ever know, seen the me? have you ever seen the family guy episode where uh peter decides to return home to meet his biological father and no. they go to the irish american history museum and it is one of these old animatronic things with the little like no. robot things on the on the track and so it's literally it's just the same scene repeated over and over again and it's just right. a man comes home from work he smacks his wife she leans back, a baby pops out, and he has a drink, and then the whole scene starts uh, that's, over again. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was certainly in the turn of the into the twentieth century. That was certainly the uh, the stereotype. Um, there was a there was a um, cartoon called uh, Oh my God, the Minora Team. On really, um, and it was the Irish guy was Seamus McFisticuffs, <laughs> and he was a he was a superhero you know, with a clada, clada ring and a shillelagh and a top hat who oh. beat his wife and drank and had a lot of kids. Yeah. So that, oh my that God. stereotype, I think, has pretty much evaporated. Oh, I think I think, I think so. Um, in, in very much the same way of like the, you know, the the big book of British smiles kind of thing has faded. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, the irony about the drinking thing that Irish people get pissed about is that they drink like half of what the English drink. And the English, English drink, and the uh, English drink less than Americans do. 
I'm not so sure about that anymore. Oh, really? Is that not true? Yeah. Okay. I don't think that's true anymore. But they, like okay. English okay. drinking culture is a far more. It's actually the aggressive, ch- chug your beer and fucker fight kind of drinking culture. Yeah, not, I guess. I guess. The, I guess anyway. the fundamental difference I was thinking of, and perhaps this is the way it was couched in the recent article that I, or the the thing I read within the last couple of years, it was an it was an issue about consumption and ABV in the age of craft beer. Oh, interesting. And so yeah. it was a, it was a, and I wish I could remember where I saw, but it was this idea of like, yes, we think of the English as sort of being champion drinkers, but they're largely drinking much lower ABV beers. Is this trend changing? Is America becoming more alcoholic essentially? You know, oh, I see. Well, so, so in Ireland, everyone basically is drinking things like Beamish or Guinness. Right. Like four one of those beers. Others. At best, I think Guinness is like 3.6 or something in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So it's a very low it's a it's a talking culture that has drinking in it right it's not the sort of boom thing now when you're in london you'll see people drinking like not just like and by the way american craft brewing has really come to these places in a very big way that's interesting it was just when i was there in 2016 in london it was starting to show up you were starting i mean starting to see it i have friends where we have a running joke where wherever we go we find the local craft American style craft brewing place because they always have a chalkboard with white chalk writing that has what the beers are. Mm-hmm. Right? They've always got like a hipster bar with like corrugated metal. And is this is this like specific the to the British Isles, Bill? Or are you noticing no. this all, all over Europe? Uh, Vietnam. I've seen it in Vietnam. Oh I've seen God. pictures of it, and either I've personally seen it or I've seen pictures of it in Ireland, uh, United Kingdom, France, um, uh, Vietnam. Japan, Australia, um, all over. It's become is, a, it's is become the American. It, I was just going to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Is it is the American craft beer movement like that kind of a sort of a tasting room kind of vibe? Is that becoming the new Irish pub? That is becoming the new thing. I have okay. sat in a in a bar overlooking the lake where John McCain, his plane crashed in Hanoi, and I was sitting in one of those bars with the corrugated metal, the chalkboard, everything, looking out on the. I'm drinking, looking out on the lake where his plane crashed. Like that's that's how deeply penetrated it has been. And but it's not up yet to the Irish bar because if you go to like Ulaanbaatar, there's the Grand Khan Irish bar in Ulaanbaatar. Right? We're not there yet, but it's working on it. And and the other thing, by the way, that's fascinating is going the other direction for Vietnamese culture. Pho has become global. You see uh, well, pho places of, first everywhere. Of all, how and I know that you are not only a huge fan but an expert um and by the way when i come and see you in dc this summer uh do not tell the people but i want you to to tell me how to get to this place that you've mentioned to me before the sort of secret special place in dc near you oh that's fine everybody knows about it yeah it's not okay um but anyway how you can't universalize hot broth with delicious things in noodles to be served all the time well why that isn't already a thing i don't know i'm glad we have I mean, it. it is for fun like fun is for breakfast in vietnam right. or for dinner or for whatever you want it's right. the, it's it's the universal widget of food uh and um, is it is it like other sort of staple dishes that that you have that are kind of indicative of an of a national dish where it it's different almost every day in every place no no it's highly consistent remember that you know the idea of we want to really like get a deep cut here yeah. A restaurant is called a restaurant in French because it comes from places that sold broth. 
and that was seen as restoring you. So they were the French equivalent of a, of a coffee shop, except you went and got this good bone broth that you ate and that felt made you feel warm and full and everything else that was also cheap. The restaurant eventually becomes the restaurant, right? The French conquer Vietnam. They already have this love of those broths. And that is where you get pho, right? Because I had Vietnam- no idea there was so much of a French influence in this. Enormously. Well, well, Vietnamese people will punch me in the face for saying this probably, but the one strong, the strongest argument I know of where the word pho comes from, it's really pho, pho, pot a pho, pot of fire. That's a French dish. Yes, it and is. It, is a, it is a brothy kind of thing in certain instances. So my personal belief based upon everything you look at is that there probably was a soup like that in Vietnam. But how pho comes about is the strong French influence to have a clear, clean broth. I mean, you you see French influence in Vietnamese food very strongly. Baguettes, the emphasis on really fresh ingredients. Um, you don't see the you don't see the dominance of the sort of stir-fried stew sort of things you see in the cultures around it. It's um it's more refined. It's less rustic than other sort of like international well, kind of like what I would refer to as poor people food, which is always the best food. But if you right. go to say Mexico or South America or Africa, you're going to get or or India, you're going to get things like tandoori's and tagines and right. you know, chiapinos and things like that that are cheap ingredients braised for a really long time designed right. to be eaten as a stew that can be saved for several days. And then you put a chunk right. of bread in it and you've got a meal for the entire day. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, like I, I grew up um, as my, my dad's whole family came here from Sweden to be miners in the UP. Hmm. And so pasties were a big thing in my family, even though we weren't Welsh pasties yeah. were, were sort of a family food. And the idea behind that was that you could take leftovers, put them in a pastry tuck them in wax paper, shove them in your shirt pocket to keep it warm and then eat it at lunch. So it just became a thing out of convenience. But like what you're talking about with, with the French influence in pho to me, what I see is that in all of those sort of rustic poor people dishes, there is a point at which the refinement kind of stops due to just logistics and practicality. What What you're saying is the French kind of helped take pho to a more sort of like culinary elite level. Yeah, I wouldn't even like, I wouldn't say like clarity and but there's an expectation that it's not a cloudy broth, for example. Like that takes extra. Right. I mean, time. Takes extra but I wouldn't time. say I wouldn't say the French brought it there. I would say the Vietnamese saw what the French were doing, fair things point. they liked, got it, and said, ah, that looks good. Right. Um, you know, it doesn't when people get mad at me for saying it comes from Pot of Foot, at least the name does. I'm not saying that it was like the French brought it there. Right. I'm saying the Vietnamese saw what the French did and went, ooh, that looks nice. I mean, look at a banh mi, right? A oh, absolutely, mi, absolutely. Homemade mayonnaise, homemade pate, right? Like it's all these, it's undeniably authentically Vietnamese. It's also undeniably heavily influenced by what they got from the French. Absolutely. Right, there's no, and, and you know, the French have a different effect on places, A, because their home cuisine was good. These are not the Dutch or British colonizers who boil the crap out of everything and ruin it right right and a their food was good when they arrived in these places but also the french attitude towards their empire was we are making these places part of france right it was not we are going to 
and they were very exploitive, no question. They did a lot of terrible things, no question. But in the end of the end, they were like, no, 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 no. Like Vietnam, Vietnamese are going to be French Vietnamese. Like we're going to bring they as they saw it, bring them up to right. being full citizens of France. So it just even though all the imperialism and exploitiveness and everything else existed in that colonial arrangement, their attitude was still very different because they did not automatically just say these are people we're going to exploit forever. So there's more of an interchange there that is is not completely nasty all the time. I mean, if you look at the British Empire in India, basically 99% shit. Or, or um, you look at the Spanish influence in South America. Like they exactly. just wanted, they just wanted to level everything and start over. Yeah, and give us, give us the gold, give us the slaves, right. and we're out of here. Yeah, the French literally saw themselves as having a civilizing mission. Now, I obviously think they weren't civilizing anybody. The Vietnamese were already civilized, but it's still more of an interchange there. And and by the way, I mean, you go to Paris and you can see Vietnamese influence in Paris all over the place. What is the Vietnamese influence or what is the, the French influence today on the ground that you would see besides food in Vietnam? Well, so the Vietnamese are very contemptuous of the French as a country, actually. Oh, I'm sure that they are. Yeah, they, they most see pe- them as most, like... Most people do not have a great opinion of their occupier. No, exactly. And and the, you see the French in investing in Vietnam. There's a lot of French investment. The French clearly love Vietnam. You see a lot of French people there. Um, you hear very little French language. There is There are vestiges, significant vestiges of French words in Vietnamese vocabulary. Um, but there's not, you know, they look at the French and they're like, whatever. They were the easy ones to be, was kind of the attitude. Whereas, oh, gotcha. you know, the, um, the Americans were super badass and really strong and both incredibly good and incredibly awful at the same time. You know, we're, we're the Godzilla Right. Of, mm, that's a of that's Vietnamese a great culture. way to that's a great way to put it, Bill. I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, and 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 then when the war was over, the U.S. was like, "Fine, let's all be good with each other." After a couple of years, and yeah, so there's just a different a different relationship with Americans. They really are very very kind to and like Americans quite a bit. Um, but again, you know, it's the you know we kicked you in the nuts and beat you, and you're the yeah, biggest you can... biggest baddest dog on the block. So yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome to come back here, but you need to understand who's daddy. Yeah, and, and I gotta tell you, you know, <laughs> Viet- well, Vietnam's in a tough neighborhood. They're next to China. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very pragmatic decision made there. Yeah. If you're next to China and you don't want China to dominate you, well, call you the Americans of, in. I was gonna say you kind of you kind of gotta be pals with the big boy on the block. That's right. That's what, right. So um, but it's oh, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say that so kind of coming all the way back to where we started. We sort of talked about how Vietnam feels about the world and how yeah. you know, the, the PVDs people I know in, in America, they, you know, you see, you meet people who have no accent who were in Vietnam until they were 15 or 20 and people who came when they were young and still have an accent, right? You see the sort of how people, there's this really complex thing that happens and how people react to having left and whether they're going to hold on to things or maybe even just their ability to lose their accent might be higher. I met a, the couple that I met who were, who were, had separate um, refugee experiences and then met in, uh, actually met in the Detroit area, one of the refugee houses there. Um, And uh, he spoke very good English and she spoke almost none. Yeah. And they had been married for 40 years. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and that's in one relationship, right? I mean, it, it, yes. 
it gets really complicated. And I would say though, that the, what happens in within marriages or within communities is there are, as I said at the beginning, people who look over their shoulder for the rest of their life and people who don't. Um, I would say that the Vietnamese tend to be quite unsentimental as a general generalization about it. But again, I also think that's because there's a lot of communication. It's not this misty emerald isle floating off of the Atlantic that still has lots of priests and druids and and the old ways, right? It's, it's, it's not it's, it's not all based mind. in fuzzy nostalgia. That's right. And Irish Americans are enormously prone to nostalgia. I make a point when I'm in Ireland if someone says, Oh, are you are you Irish? I said, Well, I'm Irish American. And when you make that distinction quite intentionally, Irish people go, hmm. Okay. Like, and there's a subtle, like, good job. Because they see, they get some guy who's Bob from Odessa, Texas, who shows up and says, oh, I'm Bob O'Malley, I'm Irish. And they're just like, like, gross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am that guy, by the way, that I pretend not to be American if I'm stuck with a bunch of obnoxious Americans in Ireland. Or uh, I think the best way to do that is just to try to be un-American if you can. I struggle with it because I'm naturally loud. And so I draw attention to myself. And when you do that, you raise your hand and go, you speak English with a flat, flat accent and you're, you're yeah. loud. You're clearly from the Midwest. That's you. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So what, uh, what, speaking of language, what, what is the language? I mean, I know you're traveling with people who grew up there or lived most of their life there. Um, what, what is the language barrier like? Is there one? In Ireland? <laughs> in, in, no, no. In Ireland, no. In Ireland, I just need to watch subtitles when I watch their mystery programs. Right. Um, no, in Vietnam, getting around, like, is it is? I would assume you can get in and out of things fairly easy with, with no comprehension of the local language. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's not a big deal. I mean, you you can get the Google Translate on your phone. Of course. Put Vietnamese English on your phone. And I negotiated a, a street corner... Um, uh, deal with a guy i wanted to get his his helmet there's a the company the uber in vietnam is called grab and the helmets at least back then a couple of years ago were like this amazing sort of french 1960s style oh. green helmets like the white and they're just really awesome the logo's great so i wanted one of course they don't sell them because it's like the uniform of this company right. so I, I actually called a grab for a ride and then using my phone i would speak into it and say how many you know, Vietnamese Don will that cost me to buy that helmet. And then the, I, the guy's like, what? I hit play and it plays. He starts laughing. And then I hit, I say, hit the button. And then he speaks into it. And then I hit play and it says in English, I can't sell it. It's my, it's my helmet for work. Right. And then we went back and forth for 45 minutes. We were in front of like a, a school where the principal of the school yeah. thought that somehow this guy might be ripping me off. Oh, wow. And so he came, he came out and started yelling at, at the guy. And then the guy was like, no, 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 no. And then showed him the thing. And then it became this three-way deal where we eventually worked out the principal like died laughing when he realized what was going on we had this amazing super fun negotiation to for me to buy this helmet and i did this for 45 minutes and it got really like okay 8500 no 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 no. 10,700 okay what if i buy you lunch and i give you 8700 you know we went we were doing it almost as a joke at that Right, but you right. can do that in Vietnam and it's not a problem. I mean, I, I will tell you, I've typically traveled there with people who speak Vietnamese. Yeah. 
So I, I'm probably not the best person to ask that question of, but, no, I but, I, but I mean, I've been... talked to other people who don't have any grasp of, of Asian languages at all, who right. have got, who have gotten around with relative ease. I mean, obviously you don't want to be disrespectful and make no effort, but yeah, clearly yeah, yeah. you want to try, but like to think that you're going to, you know, especially if you're a person who is our age, if you're in your fifties, learning a brand new language that complicated before not you go happen. on your trip is not going to happen. Yeah. And even if it did, you're going to make yourself miserable in the effort. So like, do yeah, no, I guess translate. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's fine. Public transit's pretty great. I imagine it usually is. No, no, not in Vietnam, not in Vietnam. No, you're no, I mean, the, you can fly between cities super easily. The okay. trains are fine. Um, you can rent, you, you're not going to rent a car to drive it there. No, like God, no enterprise rent a car is not a thing. You're I mean, do. I mean, so, is it, is it, it's grabs and Ubers and lifts and that kind of thing mm-hmm. largely. Okay. And I mean, the, the, the grabs might be a guy who roll, you know, you say it's just one person and it might be mm-hmm. a guy in a motorcycle who pulls up mm-hmm. and hands mm-hmm. you a helmet and you put the helmet on, jump in the back and you go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very, it's easy to get around because people are always offering you rides for very little money. Right. Um, but you're not going to have a car and driver and you could hire a driver if you felt like you wanted to be ultra swank. But that seems to me to be a waste of your time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and also yeah. kind of removes some of the fun of travel. That's exactly right. Um, yeah, it's the serendipity. It's the people. You like, my, dude, dude, the... my, one of my favorite things when I when I go to this spot where my parents uh, would spend their winters in Mexico was um, I would walk up to the street to to go into town and to get a ride. You just you pay 10 pesos and you get on the colectivo. So it's a buck. Yep. Yeah. And, exactly. and, and these colectivos are just they're just a truck. And the, yep. the tailgate's been taken out and then they built a rack that's got like a little like tarp over it. Yeah. And you get eight people that can sit inside and then people hang off the back and four ladies sit up yeah. front with their groceries. And yeah. uh, it's an amazing, you have these conversations and you're inside of someone's life for five minutes and then you never see them again. That's and right. it's just, in, that is the shit that I want to do. Yeah. It's you know? the perspective change. I mean, you, if you sit on a tour bus going from Clonmel to Dublin to Tyrconnell to Cork, you're going to learn a lot about Americans who go on tour buses to travel to Ireland. Correct. If you rent a car or, or you take like the actual like mass transit in Ireland, the bus, train, the whatever, then you'll actually run around. You'll run into people. I mean, in Belfast, I got a bike and rode a bike around in the rain in Belfast for almost an entire day. That, that sounds amazing. Fun. It was pretty interesting. And that, but that was the most um, instructive thing about Belfast that I did because by moving around in that way, you really get a feel for what the city's like. Instead of seeing place, boom, you're in another place. You don't have to navigate. You don't have to think. Yeah. The it, last, you know? the last night we were, cause that's what, I mean, that's essentially what we did in Morocco was we took an organized tour and they'll let you out and you yeah. see some people. And, and there Morocco's were a little different too. Um, yeah. And yes, for a whole bunch of reasons, but, but there was also really well-planned times in the day and resources for you to go and do local stuff if you wanted to. So yeah. you could go, Hey, cause of course our guide's name was Muhammad. You could go, Hey Muhammad, um, I would really like to go find a local meal instead of going to the hotel tonight. Can yeah. you recommend a spot? You know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. or we'd like to go out and get a drink. Is there a bar nearby that will actually serve alcohol? you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And being able to do like, without question, the best afternoon that I had the last day that I was in Marrakesh, I walked around, like, right as people were getting out of work. 
And I walked around this neighborhood and kind of got lost for a couple hours between like four and six as the sun was setting. And yeah. I watched people just going about their day, washing a car, picking up their mail, you know, sweeping out a, or a, banging out a rug on a, on a hanger yeah. out in front of the house. Domestic life. Yeah. And all of the, all, all the, all the showiness falls away. And yeah. it's like, if you just stay quiet for a minute and pay attention, you get to see real life happen in a way that you often don't even see it in your own town because you're not paying attention to it. That's right. You, you become used to like just ignoring things that are not you know important to you as you go about your day-to-day life. You know, I mean, I, I had that, I've had those experiences in a lot of places and you know, one of my favorite things in the world to do was like my wife and I, one time were in Paris for days and with no plans, we just walked around, just walked around. That's it. No, no, going to do this, going to do that. Just bouncing around. We, um, we did that in Istanbul once, which was amazing. My parents um, had to watch. My parents had two days in Istanbul where it was when they had the, was it a was it a volcano in Iceland that screwed up all the flight yes. patterns? Okay, so yeah. it was when that happened, and they wound up having two extra days in Istanbul, and they just walked. My mom said they walked like twelve miles each day. Yeah, yeah, and oh, they just amazing. took everything amazing in. Place. And um, that was a place where we were talking about the the surprising consistency of pho. Turkey, from what I hear, is the opposite of that, where the national dish is some kind of lentil thing wherever you go, but it's never yeah. the same. It's never the same twice. Yeah, that's true. Turkey, the food is not great. Let's, I'll be honest with you. It's no. not, it's, it's kind of bland cheeses, tomatoes, mm. salt encrusted fish. It's fine, but you're not going there for the food. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, I mean, that was kind of my vibe in Morocco. I, the vegetables were great. The, mm-hmm. the, the tagines were good. Um, what seafood I had, the seafood that I had in, uh, in Tangier was f- just incredible, but the rest yeah. of it was just kind of meh. It was just kind of, yeah, it was, exactly. It was, yeah. It was but, fine. You know, there's, there's places that have had, you know, I mean, if you look at England, the food is meh. Oh yeah. If you look at Ireland, and, the food is meh. And the I food mean, in England, are good, when you have, when you good. literally can go and conquer the entire fucking world and pick whatever you want and you still can't make food, something's yeah. wrong with you, dude. Yeah. And I mean, England and Ireland actually have amazing ingredients. They have good fish. They've got great vegetables. They've got great dairy, great cheese. I mean, they have all of the things you need and in all, to make And in all food. fairness, the Irish food scene has really come a long way in the last quarter century oh yeah but i gotta tell you in belfast in march we were trying to find after two days this is four or five guys yeah drinking their way from cool bar to cool bar in belfast Mm -hmm. by the second day we were trying to find a salad because we were like this is crazy we haven't seen a green thing anyway we go to a restaurant and like you would get like a potato and this is this is a country with a 300 day growing season and most of it yeah oh yeah 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 no and you see, go to the farmer's market and there's amazing vegetables but you go to the restaurants and no that's not what anybody they don't, they don't <laughs> yeah it's really pretty wild um we actually uh, asked for we asked for rocket which is what we would call arugula yeah in the steakhouse we were in and i swear to god i got like four leaves oh my like, god they came back like very very ceremonially put down a couple of leaves of rocket as though as though you had ordered as though you had ordered truffles there was a sacral there was a sacral quality to the greens that came and were laid at my table but it's uh yeah so i I would i would tell you too by the way about the the sort of feeling of just or the the process of letting things happen to you 
in a country and just doing that by just wandering around. I mean, I, I was in Germany last summer and I met, I drank in a bar with some guys who were East Germans. This was in what had been the DDR. Okay. Um, who were quite bitter about the war in Ukraine and quite sure that, uh, that East Germany was better than modern Germany. And these are like these guys in their 20s. And I was like an American warmonger. Like, and that was a wild experience just to get this experience of going like, man, like you just don't expect that. And even in Germany, you just don't expect that. And Or to be in, you know, we were in uh, Vietnam and we bumped into a guy who used to move all, this is years ago, he used to own all the ships that all of British Petroleum's oil was moved on globally. And he was staying, we were in this resort town in Vietnam it's a this great resort town. And we were staying in an old French hotel that had a black slate pool. And it was this beautiful 1930s building and everything else. And I think I was paying like 73 bucks a night. And this guy named Simon, who we met in a bar in the town, was paying $2,300 a night for what he called the James Bond suite of this, of this thing down the road. And you know, you're sitting there with basically a billionaire. And you're having this conversation where he, by the way, was a guy who grew up poor in, in, a, in the east end of London and became a bajillionaire. But, you know, you can have that conversation with a 20-year-old who has this insane idea of how the world works. Then you run into another guy who, by the way, this was not, we met him. It just, he had come to look at the bar in our hotel because he heard the hotel was beautiful. And then he kind of looked at me and I looked at him and I said, so what are you doing here? And he was like, he clearly was looking for people to talk to. And that, He wanted a connection. Well, and, and like the greatest thing that ever happened with that guy, we, of course, hit it off and ended up drinking and going to dinner and having a really fun time and met it. He brought his wife and kid and we met them. And at like one in the morning that first night, um, we were walking home, both on our way to our respective abodes. Um, and Simon was making fun of himself for spending 2300 bucks a night telling me what a jackass he felt like. And we ran into an old Vietnamese woman who had a fruit cart. And she was trying to push it up this steep hill on her way home. And it was full of jackfruit and mango and all this beautiful fruit. And Simon ran up and was like, hey, can we buy some fruit? You know, I know you're going home, but can we buy fruit? And so we buy a bunch of fruit. Simon's just throwing money on the thing, you know, dumping a sheaf of Vietnamese dogs. He doesn't know how much any of it's worth. And he just throws it down. So we're standing there eating and she's laughing and we're talking to her and having fun. And then Simon says, so wait, is that your hill? You're going that way? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I have to go up the hill. And Simon turns around and goes, boys, let's go. And we grabbed the cart and we all rolled it up the hill for her. So she didn't have to do it herself. That's amazing. And it was just this like whole, you know, we were, we were moderately drunk. We we're dripping with fruit juice and we, had, we just had this really fun night. And, and, it's, and it's one just, of those things that will. The thing is, Bill, that woman's told that story a hundred times. Oh, the crazy Americans. Yeah. Yeah. crazy Englishman and the crazy Americans. Yeah. But it was a it was just a really funny, like one of those moments that sticks in my head and will always stick in my head for the rest of my life. I, and I you, will, and never... you for there is no amount of money on earth that could create that for you that you could guarantee. No. No. And no. it yeah, and, you get and, and I it that seems especially poignant to me when you talk about who is involved in this story. Oh, a billionaire. That, that guy billionaire could have spent a, that guy could have yeah. spent. $23,000 a night to get that experience and wouldn't have had it unless he was brave enough to just go, all right, let's push this fucking thing up the hill. Oh, you know, he actually felt, you know, he came from poverty. 
Yeah. And there's a reason the guy's a billionaire, right? Like he came from well, sure. and he looked at this woman and was like, oh, that's my mother. Yeah. Right. Like um, this, he's sort of the, this would, I guess if there's the opposite of a succession story, this guy would be it. He's right? the anti-Elon Musk. He and I have spoken maybe twice in the succeeding 15 years. Okay. Yeah. I, we've never, once or twice, you know, just an email. Okay. I saw something happen to his company. Hey, checking in. How are you? Mm. You know, he, he, you know, he checked, he found, you know, he, we had just, I was on my honeymoon actually. And on like my first anniversary, he sent me an email and I hope you and the, who and the wife are doing well. Oh. Where are the babies? You know, that's it though. Like not there, this relationship never became transactional. Right. In any way. Right. In fact, I couldn't even, he may have passed away. I'm not even sure he was okay. older than, but it, it really was a, you know, those experiences where you're sort of in the moment. It, it, it reminds me of this thing what, that in the way that you, look at the world. Everyone thinks that they're looking at a room and they're seeing the whole room. You're really not. What you're seeing is what you were directly looking at and your brain is filling in all the periphery of it off of detail that it has already taken in because it doesn't want to overwork and constantly be doing all the synapse work and the energy to constantly be checking and checking and checking everything. You wouldn't be able to concentrate on anything if your brain didn't fill in the background for you with everything that's going on. This just not just apply to eyesight it applies to experience as you said when you are at home you don't notice the lady with the fruit cart because you see her every day right and your brain just fills in that detail i would say both emotionally and physically whereas if you go overseas everything has that light to it it's the it's the sudden it's the it's the idea that like i never drink coffee unless i'm in paris because it has the coffee a is different but b has these associations for me of being 20 years old when i the first time i went there yeah. And those associations and those memories give that coffee a flavor that's totally different. Drinking it out of a bowl, you know, like not out of a coffee cup or not out of some. And, and having cup. that where where especially when you can connect to it the way that you have, where you can kind of understand the the disparate pieces of it that make it meaningful. Yep. The thing that I that I think is really kind of remarkable about that is you can almost recreate a different version of yourself for a fraction of a second. There is a, well, the, it's not, it's not like you're tricking yourself into being something different, but there is a moment when you can kind of conjure the feeling of it. Does that sure. make sense? I mean, it, it's the, it's the idea. I forget the Greek philosopher that said, um, no man can cross a river twice because he's not the same man and it's not the same river. Oh, you, wow. You, yeah. And you just by putting yourself in all of those situations without having really to do anything active, to be honest with you. Well, you yeah. have to, I mean, the deal is we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go through the day, right? I mean, right. unless we choose to end our lives, we're going to go through the day. And so therefore you're making a series of choices and doing a series of things that lead to a conclusion. And that's going to happen whether you intend to it or not. Right. And, well, and the idea would be that, you know, the point is not that you have to go, you don't have to go to Paris and be like, now I am doing X with all this trauma and bullshit. All you have to do is avoid over-mediating your experiences. Avoid the tour. Maybe go the first time you're there and you don't know what to do. Sure, take the fucking bus so that you see where everything is. Yeah. For the most part, you should be avoiding overly mediating the situation you're in. Walk around in the place just to be in the place. Don't have this idea that, you know, I got to tell you, I've been to Paris a bunch. I've never been to Versailles. Um, I will Never tell you that I've been to Paris once and I went to Versailles and I regret not going to Giverny. Okay. Yeah. 
There you go. Um, and, and the do, the deal was we, we took we took um we took my my wife and my daughters and I went when my oldest graduated from high school in 2016. And it was the first time that they'd ever been to Europe. And it was the first time I'd been to yep. London or to Paris. And um and we spent five days in each city. And we our last day, our last thing was Versailles. And I'm glad that I saw it, but I wish I had just taken the tour of the gardens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the more you can see a lot of what is Versailles online. There's not a yeah. you're looking at beautiful it's a art, house. No question. Beautiful architecture. No question. But that's it. You're not going to meet French people there. You're not going to. And it's not you know. it's also not like for me, it wasn't like standing inside St. Peter's. It doesn't yeah. have the same cultural import. It doesn't have no. the same gigantic influence on Western civilization. It's, it's right. important and it's neat. And it's fundamentally right. crucial to our understanding of Western culture. But I'm not changed by being inside of it. Whereas no. even as somebody who is virulently anti-Catholic. Right. Um, Sucker Carr is a bigger deal. Yeah. yeah. Sucker Carr really that or the best thing, by the way, Sucker Carr, by the way, folks, is in the Montmartre section of Paris. And you guess what? The Eastern Paris, I, I'm thinking, kind of making that up. I don't know my geography anyway. well enough, but that sounds right. Yeah. And you go and there's a hill, the funiculaire, and it's like a, a little elevator thing. You can take up the hill to get to the top. Get to the top, there's a, a square, and there's this beautiful church called Sacre Coeur, and it looks out all over Paris. First time I stayed in Paris, my father had a friend who owned the apartment building to the left of Sacre Coeur, and he came to the garret, which was basically a little attic room, but had a little window. But when you looked out the window, the whole tableau of Paris was in front. Oh. But the thing about it is that was not really what made that neighborhood amazing. At the time, by the way, the bottom of that hill was where all the transvestite prostitutes hung out. This is a different Paris. This is 30 years ago. But when you went behind Sacre Coeur, there is a a um a wine, a grape, grape growing. What do you call it? A vineyard. There's a vineyard, a vineyard yeah. right behind it. The wine sucks, but there's an actual old 300 or 400 year old vineyard, which is still in the middle of Paris, basically right behind Sacre Coeur and you walk through that neighborhood and there's this cool little, it's just a detail of it and the, the weirdness of it, that you're in this really urban environment and then suddenly gnarled old grape trees and, you know, just yeah. these beautiful grape vines and just beautiful. And that again is a good example that if you took the tour to Sacre Coeur, they never go around the back of the building. No. You go in, you look at it and Sacre Coeur is amazing. Sacre Coeur is amazing. It's beautiful, whatever. Yeah. It's incredible. But when you go into the vineyard in the back, then you're in old France. You're in real France. We and did. I mean, we didn't take a tour, but I didn't. I didn't know to walk around back. Right. I went. Oh, I right. saw Sacre Coeur. That's real. You know, and the, check the, the box. The tourists yeah. are all out there, and they're you know, it's an inc- it's just mm. an incredible view, and it's a little bit like it's a little bit like when you go to Manhattan the first time, and you're like, I've never been here, but I know it all because I've yeah. seen it a million times. And when you're yeah. standing on that goddamn hill and you're looking down over that entire city, you're like, I've seen this before. That's right. But when you walk down into the city and you get that very particular smell that the subway has that comes out of the grates. Yeah. Or when you walk by the really, frankly, too, truly shitty hot pretzel guys. Oh, yeah. And that has that certain smell or you or the guys, the guys with the uh, with the 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 the, the nuts, the candied nuts. Yes. The candy um, you go to Grace Papaya and you walk in and the smell there, or yeah. if you go into into McSorley's, oh sure, 
the the sawdust and that guy the guy pepe behind the counter uh, yells at you the 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 chicken bones on the chandelier that's at McSorley's, right. yeah. um yeah which yeah, is, yeah. The, which is one of my really favorite neat. stories um do you oh, want to yeah. tell that story bill for our listeners who don't know you tell that story because I don't know it very well. I know. Okay. Of it, but I, I, know I, it I know it. I know it only as well as it was told to me in the summer of 2006. Um, the story was that all of the guys who were shipping out to the, the, the Atlantic theater during World War II would go and basically be in. New, it was common for for sailors, especially to be in New York for a day or two before they officially shipped out. And so that's right. they would go get drunk because that's, that's what right. you do. And McSorley's is this old time, they refer to it as McSorley's old time ale house. They have two kinds of beer on tap, at least they did when I was there 15 years ago. That's correct. They have light and they have dark and they have these sort of smaller, like six or eight ounce mugs and you get two of them. Mm -hmm. So you get like 14 or 16 or 18 ounces of beer or whatever it is, but it comes in two mugs for whatever reason. And it's been that way forever. And at one time when I was there, they pretty much stopped serving food essentially, but during World War II, they had a chicken dinner and that was kind of what was on the menu. So these sailors would come in, they would get hammered and they would get a chicken dinner and they would either get it for free or get it for cheap because it was obvious that they were all shipping out. And the deal was one guy at some point took his wishbone and he hung it on the chandelier and he said, I'm coming back for this. And it, became, right. a, and it became a tradition. And then essentially, you know, a bunch of these guys weren't going to come back because they couldn't, but even the ones who did come back from the war, didn't come back for their chicken bone. But uh-huh. the people that own McSorley's not only didn't take them down, they've never cleaned the chandelier since. They've never dusted That's them correct. That's because correct. they don't want them to fall apart and get ruined. That's and right. So when you go in there, there are chicken bones there that are from a meal from 1942 or whatever, where yep. some guy shipped off to England and then maybe never came home. Yeah, there are, there are things in McSorley's that Abraham Lincoln pulled off the wall and put back up. Abraham Lincoln there. McSorley's, by the way, for folks who don't know, it was a nice bar-ish, nice-ish bar in 1864. But then as that neighborhood went downhill, it became all SROs, single-room occupancy housing for the semi-homeless. Uh, Skid Row, basically. Yeah, I mean, this is not this time. is not very far from the famous Chelsea Hotel. It's only a few blocks. That's right. That's right. It's right next to Cooper Union, basically. Yeah. And then it was this terrible bar for down and outers in that neighborhood where you could get a beer for 10 cents, but they left all that stuff. Everything stayed the way it was. And now that neighborhood has become wealthy again. And McSorley's is where reprobates like my brother, Chris go <laughs> once a week during the season. You know, my brother, Chris friends, the owners and friends, all the bartenders and everything else. And okay. it's a, my family has been going there for easily 75 years. Okay. Um, and it's, it's an institution. It's a New York institution. The beer sucks. The oh, it's not good. It's not no, good. The and bartenders it's, are rude. I mean, it's and it's great because they know you. Um, shit. And it's, uh, I think the thing I was most blown away, like I said, it was like 06 or 07 when I was there. The thing I was most blown away by is there is this old potbelly stove that sits in the middle of one of these rooms. And on the wall next right. to the stove, there is a photo of Woody Guthrie playing his guitar standing next to the same fucking stove. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because it was like a it was like the place that was semi-decent in that neighborhood back then. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. Uh, so that and the chicken bone thing, like, I don't care how bad the beer is. I'm, I'll love that place forever. Well, so I have a quick story about McSorley's that you may appreciate. I'm going to send you a picture of it happening, actually, which is when my son, it's probably 2018, I took my son to New York to pick up my brother, Chris, because we were going to take him back down to watch a rocket launch for NASA near in the Chesapeake Bay. 
And we decided to run into McSorley's to hang out. And with my son, who at the time was, I don't know, seven, six, and my brother, just to grab it, we went to New York to do various things. And we went to McSorley's to have a beer. And the bartenders there wear um, garbage bags tucked into their belts so that their pants don't get wet when they're working because they're slinging a ton of beer. And my brother, who is friends with the bartenders, particularly Pepe, put my kid on a bar stool, put him up standing on a bar stool and said, Finn, ask Pepe anything you want. And my boy yelled down the bar in a loud voice, uh, Pepe, do you wear that garbage bag to keep your balls dry? <laughs> and the entire place went absolutely apeshit. And Pepe like said, basically, you're the best kid I've ever met. And you can come here whenever you want. And and gave him all the, you know, the cops go in there and leave their badges. Oh, like leave okay. their, their shoulder their shoulder patches in there. And he handed them a stack of shoulder patches and was like, you're the best kid ever, basically. Oh, I'll send wow. you a picture of oh, please. just about that moment. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, pretty funny. Man, Finn's such a cool kid. Such well, a, he, you such know, he a was cool raised, kid. He was raised wrong is the way we like to put it. That's well. Um, uh, it does when you when you when you make little tiny reprobates like that, they're going to entertain you. Yeah. Yeah. He's a he's a good kid. And, you know, we this is very much a cultural thing. Right. You come from a ball busting fun culture. Right. You better inculcate that into your kids. You can't treat them too. You can't oh, call them too much. And you we so it's really interesting that you bring that up. I I have this sort of wonderful relationship like that with with both of my kids, but with my youngest daughter, particularly. And what I realized the other day is that I bust her balls the same way that I fuck with my bandmates. Yeah, exactly. Like different language, different territory, same behavior set. Yes. Yeah. And it's, so and my it's, kid, it's a weird, and it's a, it's a weird, like it's this sort of weird perverted version of love that like, if you deliver it the right way, you know, that's what it is. Well, it's, it's sort of, you're accepting each other's imperfections and making it a funny thing rather than making it a yes. painful thing. And you know, my kid, um, he really has me pegged because when he wants to bother me, he calls me boomer. And he knows as you, you are a son of the punk era as well. You can imagine, you just gasped when I said that, like I get so he mad called, at him. Bill, he basically called you the man. Mm-hmm. Well, he called me like, I, I think of being called a boomer as like being called a Grateful Dead fan. I, I find it equally and intensely offensive and I can't handle it. And he knows, he knows the other thing that he loves to do is he, um, when we're in a grocery store and I'm, you know, things are being rung up and I'm putting stuff in the thing, he'll catch the eye of the woman behind the, behind the register tapping away, you know, in our neighbor, typically an African-American or Latino woman. Mm-hmm. And he'll reach over and start rubbing my stomach and go, belly. <laughs> <laughs> Which Typically leads to oh. enormous laughter, but then the wow. then the then the suggestion that I should go home and beat my child. Oh wow! Yeah, he said he's he's got my number. I won't tell you what I do to him because he's still he's eleven, and I'm gonna I don't want to give anybody any ammo against an eleven year old. But yeah, so you do. <laughs> it is funny too. Like if you teach them to do that the right way, which you clearly have, like that means not only is he funny, but he's also super insightful about like our our flaws and our you know character failings those kinds of things like i noticed that in my own kids where you're like they 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 catch up on that and they'll they'll pin you on it and basically yeah. go i love you and it's okay but you do this and it drives me fucking bonkers 
And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and the way that I'm going to handle that is I'm going to make fun of you for it. And so when you yeah. see them doing that and you kind of like, and you see, but then when they, re, the, there's a threshold, like the boomer thing, there is uh-huh. a threshold that happens where you go, like part of you goes, that is totally fair and accurate. And it pisses me off. And then there's like the other part of you that's just like fucking offsides, man. Yeah. Offside too far. I, I, I raise an eyebrow and narrow my eyes. That's my, <laughs> what, what Finn calls the eyebrow of death. And I go, and that means that means vengeance shall be mine. You know, I mean, I'm a ball buster. I can't mm-hmm. I can't give my kid too hard of a time for sticking no, it to me because certainly no. I come with heavier ammunition to the fight. So I have to I have yeah. to just accept. I do the you know. I do the like I get that look the like the Bugs Bunny. Of course, you know this means war, kind of oh, thing. Yeah. That's that's oh, my yeah. that's typically my move. Like, um, before I let you go, and Bill, this has been just amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I, I would love to know, I've been fortunate in that I have found a couple of out of the way things in my international travel that were sort of handed to me one way or another that led to really special days. Is there like an out of the way thing in Southeast Asia? I mean, obviously everybody's going to go to Heilong Bay. They're going to go to Hanoi. They're going to go to the markets. They're going to go do the, the floating market sure. thing. They're going to do, if you go to Cambodia, you're going to go to, you're going to go to see a you're going to go to Angkor Wat. You're going to, you're going to do all that stuff. Is there something there that is maybe a little bit more secret that you think people might not want to miss if they go? The standing bar in Hanoi. The Great. standing bar? Standing bar in Hanoi. It's fantastic. What is that? It is a, it is one of those microbrew, American style microbrew places, but this is where I, you're looking at in the lake where John, John McCain crashed. Oh, his, right. His airplane. And it's just a great real, real, Hanoi thing. And if you're at the standing bar, there's a lake called Teho, just to the west of that, which Teho means West Lake. You walk around Teho and keep going around it. You run into a very old French neighborhood, which is now Ukrainian and Japanese as well. And this would be on sort of the exact far side of, of Teho from the standing bar. And that I would just say that and that sort of gets at an idea of Hanoi. We're just walking around Hanoi is just lovely and fascinating and interesting. But getting to, you know, there's a Japanese dressmaker in Teho that my wife went to and measured her and did some dresses for her in like two days. Wow. Um, you know, there's that there I ate in a little Ukrainian restaurant in an alley in Teho. That was just fantastic. Um so I would say Teho and let's just say Teho in general in Hanoi. It means the West Lake neighborhood. And it's okay. a very interesting thing. I would say, by the way, for Belfast, yeah, a bar called the Sunflower Bar. You and know, what, uh, what's going on there? It is a socialist punk rock bar in Belfast where you will meet all kinds of people. It's very non-sectarian. It is an amazing music venue. Um, the building had been a bar that I think closed and someone had spray painted on the side of the building. Um, no topless bathing. Belfast has suffered enough. Someone painted it or spray painted it in like the seventies or eighties on the side of the building. And they actually, when they took the building over and revamped it, they made it this enormous sign that runs down the side of the building. That is um, awesome. but you, you will run into people in there that are really in the punk scene in Belfast and have been for a very long time. And it's a very, it's an iconic place. You, you had me at cool. socialist punk bar. I was, I was fully yeah. committed. 
Well, and you'll people will tell you go to all these like old Victorian bars that are in Belfast, which is fine, they're great, but it's not like that's sort of the Belfast under glass. Okay, like I was really, I was really glad when we went to Prague that we went to one of those like really fancy coffee shops with the dessert trays and the whole amazing. It's incredible, but but you do it once. And you're going to get a similar, like, it's going to be this amazing sort of luxury experience. It's a little bit like, I don't care if you do high tea at Harrods or someplace else. Yeah, exactly. It's high still tea, the same. Right. Like, I don't need to do it six times. What I did no. need to do was stop at every fucking bar I could find that had a dollar and 25 cent Czech lager that was delicious. And they had World right. Cup and they had World Cup matches on. Yeah, there's a place called uh, the uh, uh, Rima Hrvatsky Brewery in that neighborhood in Prague, which has cow tongue, which I don't normally eat sliced cow tongue which is some of the one of the best meals i've ever eaten in my life so it's a vino hradsky prava i think it's called it's this amazing brewery in belf in in prague i I could do this i do this like i'm the guy that when people are going overseas where do you go in paris i would say you go to the uh pen des ideas which is the bakery of ideas the best bread in paris there's a place called uh le petit fer à cheval which is this tiny little it means the means the little iron horseshoe and it's this amazing little local bar right next to the Marais in Paris. Like I, oh, wow. I have a list in my head of and see, this, so this is what places. I'm, this is what I'm saying. Like, I think like right, some, some semi-regular conversations like this with you and Kevin could, mm-hmm. could be not only just super fun. Cause like I could, I could stand to do some stuff. That's not super deep. <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta um, tell you something. I don't sit, I don't sit in Prague or in Paris or in Berlin and go, Hmm. Like I, I, in my head, I'm particularly a place like Berlin. I'm really, the history is pulling me everywhere and I'm looking right. and thinking about it. I'm annoying my kid talking about it a little bit, but that's still like the tourist stuff. Yeah. That's not the, okay, what do we want to do for dinner? But, but I'm not going to go to the see, hotel Adlon. I'm going to exactly. go to a local place and have dinner. Exactly. I was just, people. I was just in Chicago two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and we went to Mr. Beef because I had fallen in love with the bear. Yeah. You and I talked about this. And I, you know, I have no problem going, okay, yeah, I'm coming here because I saw a TV show, but I didn't do it because of the TV show. I did it because I saw that and I went, I want a hot Italian beef sandwich. And I guess I might as well go to that place to get that experience. Yeah. So you go to one and then you go and there's a guy there going, Hey, you know, it's my buddy that started the show. Here's my thing on Instagram. And he's trying to use it to sort of build his own thing, but he's not being gross about it. And like, they're basically going, we understand that this is a gift and we're just going to lean into it and enjoy it and yeah. not be assholes about it. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So like I, for me, it's like, I don't care if it's a river North beef shop or the bakery of ideas or some little chip bowl donut place in Flagstaff, Arizona. Like there's, a, there's amazing stuff out there. Like, is that yeah. Bill, I'll just ask you this. And I know the answer is yes, but like, is it not one of the most magical things in the world to be by yourself on a weekday at three o'clock in the afternoon in a bar? So, you know, it's funny. I am not that guy. I'd rather be in a bar at 3am. I don't want to get, I'm not a, I don't want to drinker. I don't want to get loaded. I want to go. I want to have two pints. I want to sit yeah. by myself. Yeah. I'm talking about like solitaire. Like I'm talking about like cafe culture kind of stuff. Sit at a table, so, watch drinking people. tea. Drinking tea with a book, that's my st- that's my Okay. Thing. Okay. I am, Same kind I am of thing. A, a deliberate, yeah. like, I'm gonna sit in this spot for a couple days yeah. or a couple hours and shit's gonna slow down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that definitely. 
Okay. Yeah, I am. Yeah. I am a social drinker purely. I am okay. not a guy who will ever have a beer with dinner. I am not a guy who will who will do that. Three in okay. the afternoon having a pint. I mean, if I'm in Ireland, maybe because it's so low alcohol and whatever. Well, and again, I'm, I won't, who, yeah. I'm not going to do this at home unless I'm meeting somebody. No, like, but, so like, I'm we're not going to get done home. here and then I'm going to walk over and get it too hearted. I'm not going to no, no, exactly. 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 Yeah. It's, it's my thing is definitely the, what you're describing is whatever it happens to be you're doing is the observational thing. Yeah. Go and find a spot and just soak up what you're in. Camp out. We That's went to, sure. I was in Mexico a couple of years ago with my, my mom and my sister and we have this lovely tradition in my family called toddy time. And it started as a way for my parents to kind of unpack their day with each other. And it was, if we don't do anything else, we're going to have a drink at the end of the day and we're going to spend a half an hour going, this is what happened. Right. And then we're going to go do our, right. our stuff. That and sounds nice. It's beautiful. And I was fortunate enough that when I worked with my dad, that the office was in the basement of their house. And so it became a regular thing where, especially on like Fridays, I would stay and I would have toddy time with them. And it was really, really great. Yeah. And, and that of course winds up getting built into travel once you establish that routine. Yeah. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so we had this thing where every day at like four o'clock, we would sit on this little same stretch of street in San Cristobal de las Casas, which is this sort of small colonial city in the mountains in central Mexico. And, uh, by the time we got to like the third day, we realized we'd been sitting there for 45 minutes. We hadn't said anything to each other. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, happy we, to like just we chill. sat, we sat down and we talked for a little bit. We kind of went, okay. And then we realized like, and it's probably not 45 minutes, but it was a long time. And we realized right. that we were all watching different people doing different things for yep. different reasons. And yep. then we all kind of went like, it was like, it was almost like we all turned our heads back to the middle of the table at some point. Yeah. And yeah there was something so beautiful about that moment of quiet and not having to say anything and not having to sort right. of push the moment, just let it happen. No need to fill. Yeah. What a great yeah. way to, what a great way to, to wrap it up, Bill. Thank you so much for this, man. This was really fun. Total pleasure. Total pleasure. Yeah, Love to do it again. Yeah, let's absolutely do it. There he goes. Bill Boyle. Thanks so much, Billy. I really appreciate you being here, man. What a great conversation. Is he not a brilliant dude? What did I tell you? Um, please make sure that you are liking, rating, and reviewing the pod wherever you find it, whether that's at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or someplace else. Please make sure that you're going in there and writing a review. It's amazing how just taking a couple minutes to do something like that can help us find a whole new section of, of audience with this pod also want to ask you a favor. Will you find one person in your life you can share this podcast with? Just one. I'm trying to grow this thing ever so slowly. And if we can build that thing out organically, that's what it's going to take. I can do all the work, but I can't bring all of the people. They say that if you build it, they will come. You got to find some people to help get the word out. That's what I'm asking you to do. Find one or two people in your life that you can share this pod or the Substack with and maybe get them to sign up for a free subscription. If you already have a free subscription and you're enjoying the work or you just want to support what I'm doing, please consider a paid subscription. Um, I'm trying to make this content accessible for everyone, but I also have to make a portion of my living doing it. So please go on over to whatamimaking.substack.com and you can sign up for a paid subscription today. You can do monthly, you can do yearly. Um, it's really up to you. So please make sure you go over there and make some kind of a contribution because uh, we got to keep the doors open. Uh, I will be back very, very soon with more great conversations about more great stuff. But until then, 
We'll see you over on the Substack. Thank you so much for all of your support and encouragement, my friends. I love you and I appreciate you. And I will see you all very, very soon. recording was funded in part by a grant from the Mobile Corporation and Mattis C. and his ADHD.